the memories. The clock is down to 48 seconds. 20 to 10, Colorado leads Nebraska. They have waited a long time for this. So many times, the red blood has come into Folsom Field, and they have gone back across the border to the north, the winner. It won't be this time. The Stories. Prukop to the corner for Carrington, intercepted! Colorado got it! Witherspoon! With the biggest play in Colorado football for years! And now, as a supplement to over 40 years worth of CU football coverage in the CU at the Game archives, here is Stewart with his CU at the Game podcast. Greetings, Buff fans, from CU at the Game. This is Stuart White here, publisher and editor for the CU at the Game website, and your host for the CU at the Game podcast. It may have been CU's last best hope for a victory last weekend, but the Buffs fell at home to Arizona State, 42-34. I am joined for this podcast by Brad Geiger and Neil Langland, and we will start with a recap of the loss to Arizona State, including the failings of the defense to get off the field, only slightly offset by the best offensive output of the season, and some special plays by Pac-12 Freshman of the Week and Pac-12 Special Teams Player of the Week, Jordan Tyson. Next, before diving into our tips for the game against number eight, Oregon, we will debate the pros and cons of sitting freshman quarterback Owen McCowan. McCowan has played in four games this season, and if he sits out the last four, we'll preserve his red shirt and still have four years of eligibility remaining. If he's healthy, should he play? There's also a discussion of the creation of the Buffs for Life NIL Collective. CU fans have been clamoring for the past 16 months for a collective, a pool of dollars to lure high school recruits and transfers to play at CU, and now one exists. Will this collective be the light at the end of CU's long, dark tunnel? So, can the Buffs find a way to beat the 30-point spread that Las Vegas has put on the Oregon game? Or will the Ducks, playing before a national television audience on ESPN with a 1.30 p.m. Mountain Time kickoff, be looking to impress the college football playoff committee with an eyebrow-raising route? Will J.T. Shrout be CU's quarterback for the remainder of the season? Or will Owen McCowan be allowed back onto the field when he's able? Is the Buffs for Life Collective a breath of fresh air in an otherwise suffocating fall for the Buff Nation? Or is this going to prove to be yet another example of Colorado and its fan base failing to compete in the new age of college football? Let's find out. Okay, and we are back and joined from Highlands Ranch by Brad Geiger. How is Brad doing? Brad is good. Had to uh, travel this weekend, so watched the Buffs and the Broncos on the road, and uh, but managed to watch enough of it to be only mildly disappointed. <laughs> okay. And streaming in from downtown Denver, Neil Langland, how are you doing? I'm fine, guys. Had a lovely day here today. Went out for a bike ride, and the town seems happy. The Broncos were able to squeak by, so all is well in Mudville. <laughs> for for another week 
a two. Right. Actually, they got to buy this week. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, then undefeated for two weeks in a row. Yes. Okay. Well, as long as the, the Bronco Nation is happy, then we can talk about the Buff Nation a little bit. We'll first talk about our review. Of course, that's Arizona State 42, Colorado 34. Some numbers from the game. Total yards for Arizona State, 557, including 435 yards passing. Remember, once upon a time, she was in the top 10 nationally in pass defense, but that was after the Air Force game in game two when they only gave up eight yards passing. It's been kind of on a downhill slide since then. The Buffs managed a season high of 359 total yards. Uh, Jordan Tyson had a good game. J.T. Shrout completed 38% of his passes, and the coach said it was his best game of the season. Uh, Neil, I'll, I'll start with you. What were, uh, what were your takeaways? What were your impressions from the, uh, the Arizona State game? Well, to start with the defense, I was really disappointed. I thought they had made more progress and that Arizona State was not an overpowering offense, and I thought the defense would do better, but um, not just the amount of yards, but the way they were gained. I thought I saw a stat that there were 10 plays over 20 yards or something to that effect. They were just getting gashed, um, pass plays, run plays. They didn't seem to have any pass rush. And as everyone else has seen and noted, much of the tackling was very poor. Um, and I, I can't explain that. I'm sure they're working on it, but it just seems that uh, with our younger secondary, we're going against older players that have been in the weight room a little longer and are more mature. And it's just, they're overmatched, I think. And we're never going to expect them to tackle too well this year. This next month will be hellacious, I suspect. Offense, pleasantly surprised in some ways. I was like, enjoyed seeing stacks, uh, get a few carries. I thought that the running game otherwise was pretty good. We had a hundred yard rusher. I, I still am confounded by Shroud. It seems like he is two guys in one. And he reminds me, the only thing I can say about him is John Wooden's old saying, uh, play fast, but don't hurry. And I think when Shroud misses people by five feet, um, that he's hurrying. And I attribute that you know, trying to to be positive about it, that he probably is not too confident in his protection and seems unfamiliar in some ways with his receivers. Special teams, wow. <laughs> How can you do any better than a punt return? I uh, haven't had one of those in a long time. It's really nice to see that. And my only, the only downside to that is that this kid's going to be getting offers from all over the place. So anyway, had to close on a negative note. Sorry. <laughs> okay, Brad. Well, you talked, of course, about Jordan Tyson, who had 115 yards receiving and a long touchdown and an 88-yard punt return. The first player in CU history to have 100 yards receiving and 100 yards in punt returns in the same game, which if you go back to Walter Stanley, Ben Kelly, any number of players in uh, CU history, Cliff Branch, that uh, 
return kicks and also was a wide receiver. And Jordan Tyson, a freshman, was the first to pull off that kind of a double-double. The Buffs scored 34 points after not scoring more than 20 in a game all season. So have to at least be happy about that side of the ball, or are we looking at the fact that JT Shroud threw more passes into the second row than he did to his own receivers and completing 13 out of 34? Well, you know, I, I of course, was just offended by the tackling. It was, yeah, they had a lot of big plays. A lot of those big plays happened after contact. Um, the tight end, um, we had no answer for him. He was just bigger and stronger than anybody we had in the secondary. This was the fear that we had at the beginning of the season, is that that secondary was going to get overmatched. Teams didn't have to overmatch us in the secondary much up to now, and ASU just took advantage of it both in the air and on the ground. Um, once you got through the defensive line, and the defensive line made some plays, but this, the linebackers or the secondary in particular can't tackle. They can't stop anybody without three of them getting involved. Um, on the offense, Shrout just baffles me. Um, he, there are th throws he makes, the touchdown pass, that are on the run, running on the opposite side, throwing that are just uh, brilliant. And there are others he looks like he can't see the field to save his life. I think we're seeing the inconsistency that got led to him transferring. It was nice to see Deion Smith. I thought he saw the holes better than we've seen him. I thought he moved better than we've seen him. So I think there was some tiny bit of, it wasn't just we were playing a bad team. I think the offense was legitimately better, but not good enough. And yeah, as great as Tyson is, and I'm enjoying watching him play, of course, brings up the question, where the heck was he the first few games? Did it take us this long to figure out that we did have a playmaker? Because um, we weren't finding it in the first four games. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I think all spring and all through fall camp, everyone was, gushing about this freshman kid this Jordan Tyson you gotta wait till you see him and now he's finally getting on the on the field to play so last best chance in all likelihood at a victory but it's another L so I guess you know we got to move forward the calendar is going to turn into November and we're going to have to play three teams that are currently ranked in the top 12 in the country so it's not going to get any prettier. Neil, you off the air, you were talking about, raised the question of, uh, we've got Owen McCowan, who is a true freshman. He has played in four games under NCAA rules as they are currently constituted. You can play in four games and not burn your red shirt year. So if he hangs it up for the rest of the season, he will still have four years of eligibility left. If he takes another snap in any of the last four games, that will count as one of his years of eligibility. So knowing what we know of JT Shrout and his capabilities, again, I you know I keep on saying this, that Mike Sanford said this was his best game, even though he completed 13 out of 34 passes. He did throw for over 200 yards um, and did have, as Brad mentioned, some good completions downfield, but there were other passes on third down that weren't even on the field of play. He didn't even give his receivers a chance at catching the ball. So assuming, and we don't know this for a fact, but assuming that Owen McCown is healthy enough to play, should he play in the last four games of the season? Or should we say that we want to preserve him for future seasons and 
call it call it a year and let it preserve his red shirt and have four years of eligibility left. Well, I would say that if we allow McCann, uh, McCown to play, we're going to take be taking a serious chance with his health. He was two and a half games into his start. And against Cal, he took a couple of serious big hits, and he's not yet fully back on the map. In terms of experience, which is the argument for allowing him to play, I don't know that it's going to do a lot for him to play against those teams with those talented defenses behind a rather leaky offensive line. I would prefer that he remain healthy because I see that there is a significant chance of him playing and being re-injured, possibly to the point where he won't be able to participate in spring ball. So I think there's not much to gain, really, from having him play. Uh, he needs, I think, to recover his health, work on his body, uh, including arm strength, and head into spring uh, fully ready to take over. So my sense would be absent of just a convincing argument from McCown himself. I would say it's time to shut him down. Okay, Brad, he's uh, a little <laughs> freshman that gets hurt easily and is going to go up against some pretty stout defenses. Uh, Self-preservation should outweigh his competitiveness. Should uh, McCown be able to play if he wants to play or should he play if he wants to play? There are a lot of decisions that you don't leave to 18 year olds and whether or not to get killed is one of them. Um, and I'm, yes, I'm worried about his health behind our offensive line. I'm worried about his mental health as well. We have seen other quarterbacks get broken mentally from being constantly put under pressure, constantly facing the troubles. I, this idea that you get through a trial by fire, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes they just quit. And it's not like he's learning the offense for next year. Of the many things we know, it ain't going to be a Stanford offense next year. <laughs> so I think there is a good value to having him sit, having him learn, having him carry the, carry the clipboard. I think that having been on the field and seen it in real time, he can probably pick up more. I don't think they should play him. I understand competitive fire. I also understand that uh, – Sometimes competitive fire can lead you to do stupid things. So I would like to see him sit less for the redshirt year, but more for learning the process before we get a new coach. Okay. And run the risk potentially that his fourth year of eligibility, five, four years down the road might be wearing the colors of a different team. But that's, you know, something we'll have to deal with down the road. But Enough of Arizona State. The Buffs are one and seven, officially eliminated from bowl possibilities. Not that they weren't eliminated by the first quarter of the Air Force game, but as a mathematical possibility, no longer eligible for a bowl. Um, now going up against the seven and one, five and zero, oh, number eight in the country, Oregon Ducks, line somewhere around thirty-one points. We're going up against a quarterback that had a mixed career at Auburn and Bo Nix, but has had a rejuvenation under Dan Lanning in Eugene. He's completing 72% of his passes, over 2,200 yards passing, 20 touchdowns with only five 
interceptions. He also has 441 rushing yards, which is more than any running back at the University of Colorado, and 11 more touchdowns. Now, just a little perspective on that, the University of Colorado offense has scored 14 touchdowns total all season. And Bonix has 20 passing touchdowns and 11 rushing touchdowns. He actually has better stats if you're just looking at pure numbers than Marcus Mariota had and Justin Herbert had when they were having banner seasons and Heisman Trophy campaigns. You guys, uh, Brad, I'll start, start with you. What, what excites you about the talent of the Oregon Duck roster? You know, it's, it, again, the thing that just kills you on the Oregon Duck roster is they're just so deep. On defense, they just keep bringing rushers at you. And offense, they just keep pounding on you until you give up. And then Bo Nix beats you over the top with a better arm than any than anything we've seen so far. Uh, what impre- Bo Nix, as we talk about JT Shroud and his decision making, Bo Nix is the opposite. He's got that senior. He's got that senior presence. He's got that experience presence. Um, I think he's playing better than anybody expected him to. Um, he came off that really bad performance at Georgia to start the season, and has just taken over that team. So. If they weren't more talented than us at every other position, the vast gap in talent at quarterback would be the concern here. This feels like a name your score, name your number of yards game for the Oregon offense. Yeah. Well, Neil, just looking at some of the names, you know, these are not household names that we're dealing with. I mean, Bo Nix had some name recognition. I was surprised. I mean, the leading rusher is a guy by the name of Bucky Irving. Second on the team is Noah Whittington. The leading receiver. It's Troy Franklin, and the second leader receiver is Chase Coda. These are not names that you're hearing on SportsCenter, but obviously they're piling up a bunch of yards. So how is it that Oregon is scoring over 40 points a game ever since the Georgia game? They scored 40 points or more in every game. Was there anything about the uh, the Oregon offense that uh, sort of stood out to you? Any of these names that I should look for because I'm – I haven't obviously paid a whole lot of attention to Oregon because, well, they haven't been on the schedule and they've been beating everybody, you know, by 30 points. So there's not all a reason to, you know, tune into their games. Anything about the Oregon offense that stood out to you? I watched the UCLA-Oregon game, uh, most of it at least. And I didn't know the names, but it was, yeah, that's an Oregon back. Yeah, that's an Oregon offensive line, and that is indeed Oregon talent at every position. They ran over UCLA, and they really took control of that game with their offense in midway second quarter. You could feel the tide turn, and from there it was Oregon, name your score. As you mentioned, their quarterback talent is off the map. We We haven't seen anything like him yet. Their receivers are fast, they are deep, they are elusive, and I can ex- I can envision some long scores coming from that offense. Oregon seems always to come up with these fast backs and receivers and a decent quarterback. This is a typical Oregon squad. Yeah, you can see a lot of little jump-off passes to the running back in the flat turning into a 60-yard run or a 15 yards to the tight end across the middle, turning into a 60-yard touchdown. Is there anything that the CU defense, Brad, can do to 
make this competitive game? Well, uh, you know, the, the standard answers are control the line of scrimmage, get some pressure on Knicks. And, but if we could do that, we'd have gotten, done that against somebody before this. Yeah. Um, you like know, a quarterback just had his first career start last week. and Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we got embarrassed last weekend by a guy who had his first start. I mean, Bo Nix, to the extent that he's paid any attention to Colorado film before today, had to be salivated. I mean, there's just – and, you know, the nice part about Bo Nix is what he's thinking about how, how much he can score in the first half so he doesn't have to play in the second. So I maybe we'll get to see how good their backup quarterback is. But, no, I guess the frustrating part is there are moments, there are plays that the front seven does what we thought they would do. There are times they make the plays. There are times they get in the backfield. There are times that they stop the run. The next, But they can't do it three plays in a row. And whether or not they can do it, the, the idea that they can do it against this offense just seems so far out of reason that you can't even imagine it. Yeah, and even if they do manage a pass rush, which hasn't happened, they're, they had zero sacks against Arizona State, Bo Nix has been sacked once this year in eight games. I mean, 441 yards and 11 rushing touchdowns. So even if they actually put pressure on him, he's just going to run around him and go for a first down, if not a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil, there there is a chance that Colorado could actually, you know, score. Uh, I don't know. It's because they have such blowout wins that the other team gets some garbage time and defense, but or you know, garbage scores that the Ducks are only 76th in total defense and are giving up 20 points a game, 81st nationally. Of course, you know, she has only had one game of getting more than 28 points, which was last week, and that's seven points of uh, that being a punt return. And she was yet to get uh, 386 yards, which is what the Ducks are giving up every game. The season high is 359 last week against Arizona State, but maybe it's garbage time or maybe the – Buffs offense can actually score some points on its own this game, uh, get past 20? Well, yeah, I'm looking at some of those stats and just looking at their total defense, you know, they're not, their lower half, just about in total defense. Their rushing defense is very good, but I think that is a statistical anomaly because they've pulled out ahead of most other teams and have resulted in teams passing against them and their pass defense is in the lower 10%. But those are deceptive. Uh, I don't think CU is going to be able to mount a rushing attack. And when CU becomes one dimensional, they won't be able to throw the ball very effectively either. So while Oregon's rankings aren't that great, they still have the talent to score just a excuse me, to stop CU, uh, to stop CU's offense, make it one-dimensional. And unless CU is able to score on some fluke long play or a special teams thing, I'm not sure how uh, CU is going to score or even move the ball, frankly. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just going to be – I mean, they only had 42 – it was 42-24 against Cal, and that was with two – turnovers and two turnovers on downs in the red zone so that's four other scores that they potentially could have had they still scored 42 points against the Cal defense it's much better than CU's 
before we leave the talent portion, again, we're doing our tips, talent, intangibles, preparation, and stats. For those wondering about Christian Gonzalez, the defector from the CU secondary, he is fifth on the team in tackles with 32, 25 solo. He leads the team and passes defended with seven. Nobody else on the duck secondary has more than three and has one of Oregon's eight interceptions. I've seen more than one draft publication that thinks he is a potential first round draft pick this year as a sophomore. So there's Christian Gonzalez, star defensive back for the University of Oregon, formerly known as a blossoming defensive back for the University of Colorado. Brad, we want to talk a little bit about intangibles. I just want to talk about the time frame of the, the kickoff. This was a Sunday selection that it could have been 135, 30, or 8.30, and lo and behold, the University of Colorado is playing Oregon at 1.30 on Saturday, national television audience against the Oregon Ducks on ESPN. Any thoughts about uh, Oregon wanting to take advantage of a national television audience to impress the college football playoff committee? Well, let's see. Oregon got honestly embarrassed by Georgia on in front of a national audience the first game of the season. While I have no doubt that, that Oregon is not up for playing CU, I have every fear that they are up for showing off in the first half against Colorado to, again, try to impress the voters at the right time. And the thing is, for them, they don't have to play their best to run up the score against us. But I suspect they'll come out fired up. They'll come out ready to go. And, you know, in other games, we've stayed. I mean, we played TCU in the first half as close as anybody's played TCU in the first half. And then it got away from us. I think Oregon's going to come out ready to fire and show it off to a national audience and then back off in the second half. So I think this is in a game that already looked bad, having them on national TV showing off to East Coast voters is worst case scenario. Yeah, it would have been a lot nicer to have an 830 kickoff and nobody was 830 mountain time kickoff. So nobody in the East Coast even had a chance to watch this game. Uh, Neil, do you think the 1.30 kickoff time is going to play a role or the fact that the opposition television is Tennessee versus Georgia on CBS at 1.30 and ESPN just realized that nobody on the planet is going to be watching any other game other than Tennessee, Georgia. And so why not just throw in Colorado versus Oregon? And it really doesn't matter that much that the fact that it's a nationally televised game on ESPN. Well, without knowing the other games on the schedule, my first impression was that the Pac-12 had lobbied the networks to get Oregon this slot as a showcase uh, for the playoff berth, possibly for the Pac-12. I think it's going to be like the uh, Oregon game that I saw, similar to the one in 212 that you saw, Stuart, in person. And Brad, you saw the one in 211. It was 29 zip after the first quarter. Oregon scored long uh, on long runs and just kept the foot on the gas, really, the whole first half. And this is going to be the same kind of game, I'm afraid. And Oregon has all sorts of incentives in the first half to get to 55 or 60 points. 
to demonstrate their, their skill and their dominance, and then just back off and let the second and third teams play the second half. So see you on the other hand, I'm not sure what there is to play for, except the players playing for each other and kind of upholding their athletic honor. But it's gonna be hard to watch because the buffs are just overmatched. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the glass house game. If you, if you all remember that against the glass Toledo. Hole. Yeah, I was, and I was unfortunately at that game, believe it or not, I was in Toledo, Ohio for that game. And wow, that was not good. You're referring to the 45 two game uh, in 2011. And yes, I was yeah. in Eugene for the 2012 game, which ended up being 70 to 14. 28 to nothing at half at the first quarter, 56 to nothing at halftime in that game in uh, 2012, the, the John Embry 2012 team, which of course went on to finish one and 11. I want to read you guys a quote from Deion Smith after the, the Arizona State game, speaking of intangibles and whether or not a one and seven team has incentive to play against one of the top 10 teams in the country. Deion Smith, he was asked about motivation and wanting to go forward, even though the team has no chance at a bowl game. At the end of the day, regardless if we're going to a bowl or not, every week is your resume. A good percentage of these guys want to play at the next level, just as I do. So regardless of if you have a bowl game to expect or another game next week, every time you strap up, you got to put on your best for your resume. The next four games, I feel like for me, and just talking to you guys, trying to be a leader on the team. I want to spread that every day is an opportunity. We never really know what we're going to be able to play, when we're going to be able to play again. We've just got to keep putting up stuff on tape, keep putting stuff on the resume. I feel like that's the best way to look at it. Now, glass half full, this is a guy that missed two games because of an injury and then went on had a 100-yard game. He wants to tell his teammates, hey, you never know when you're going to get a chance to play again. you got to play your best every game. Or the second way of looking at glass half empty that he's saying, well, we're all auditioning for other teams, so let's go out and play our best because he used the word resume three times. <laughs> so any thoughts? Am I just uh, being too cynical here, or is there a chance that we should read into this that uh, the buff lineup is pretty much – you know, 85 guys that are looking for the next gig. Well, I think the reality is in today's show, NCAA, everybody's looking for the next gig. And everybody's looking to see what better might come. But I don't take it fully that way. I think that Dion's regurgitating, reciting what he's been told. And that, you know, every coach has their ways to try to encourage players to keep playing when there is no hope, you know, to charge the light brigade kind of stuff. And that's this one is, hey, there is always something to play for. And you can talk all you want about playing for the name on the front, name not the name on the back. But at this point, the name on the front isn't giving you much. So play for the name on the back as long as it works together. Dion is smart enough to understand that He's not going to go anywhere unless those five guys up front do something. And so he's trying to encourage everybody. And I guess that's the best we can hope for. Okay. Neil, uh, are you encouraged by Deion Smith's comments or are you concerned by Deion Smith's comments? Well, I like that the players are talking and thinking positively. 
I think what they have to play for is something like this. I coached youth, uh, youth baseball for a number of years. And when we were coming up against a, a team that was powerful and, and much better than we were, the week before, as coaches, we just said, look, maintain your integrity, remember your fundamentals, and just play hard and do the best you can and don't worry about the scoreboard. But at the end of it, be able to say to yourself, I gave my all left it on the field. And I think if the bus can maintain their integrity that way, they will have had a moral victory, which I think is all that's available to them at this point. Okay. Well, we do get, we'll move on a little bit to preparation and the schedule. This is uh, Oregon playing back-to-back -back road games. And they've got Washington, a rivalry game coming up next. So I'll let you guys talk whether or not you think that's an issue or a positive for the buffs, but I'm going to give you a, a weird stat that this might even, I don't even think Dave Platty will have this one. Oregon's playing back-to-back -back on the road. The last time they played back-to-back -back road games was in 2020, and they lost the back end of that road trip, the second game of the, the road trip. The last time they did before that was 2018, and they lost the back end of the road trip. The last time they did before that was 2017, they lost the back end of the road trip. Last time before that was 2016, and they lost the back end of the road trip. I don't, I couldn't find any time they played back-to-back -back road non-conference games like Colorado did this year. Not to read too much into it, but just in case you're wondering a stat for the week that uh, Oregon doesn't fare well when they have to play two road games in a row and they lose the second game of that uh, of the road swing. But maybe the the fact that they're playing Washington would be more of a a role in this game, in, at least in the sense that they pull the starters a little bit sooner, make the game a little less embarrassing. Any thoughts on Oregon's preparation for their back-to-back -back road games, Brad, or you uh, think it really is uh, much ado about nothing? Well, a cynical person would think that Oregon, having realized that stat, was very glad to see CU as the second half of the road <laughs> game. <laughs> um, again, it, since we've kind of conceded that this is about how much Oregon wants to do, the fact that they're tired from traveling, the fact that they play Washington next week, who may give them somewhat more of a game, I think probably means that that in addition to the fact that Tennessee-Georgia is going to be the game of the week, um, indeed the game of the year so far, probably does lead them to think that calling off the first string early would make sense. I'm not sure that that's going to make a massive difference because I suspect Oregon's second team is more talented than CU's first team. But I think there's going to be every reason to that the second half, or at least most of the second half, is going to be Oregon in a shell, preserving a big lead. Yeah, trying to route the clock by running up the middle and still gaining eight yards a pop. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, Neil, anything uh, that you, I mean, the, the Buffs didn't practice Sunday night like they've been doing all year. They had a Halloween party and a pizza party. I uh, give you Sanford and company some credit for at least trying to keep the team as a team and motivated. Anything preparation wise or schedule wise, the Buffs got to go on the road the next two weeks after this game. This is their second home game in a row, the first time and the only time this year that they get to play back-to-back -back home games. So anything positive on the, the schedule that uh, 
helps the Buffs because they're playing back-to-back home games and Oregon's playing back-to-back road games? Well, just a tangent for a moment. Uh, I think I'll email Dave Platty and say, Stewart claims he has an obscure stat that you don't have. I just see how he reacts to that. Yeah, well, it's, an, it's an Oregon stat, so I don't think he would be too impressed with it. But uh, yeah, that is kind of a Platyism to uh, come up with something bizarre like that. That Oregon has not won the second half of a road game in the last five, years, six years that they tried. You mentioned the the no practice Sunday, and I, I know from my limited experience that there were certain parts of a football season where you had some tough games coming up later and sort of a not so tough one where there would be weeks where the teams wouldn't hit. They would just be in shells the whole time and doing a lot of stretching recovery and preparation that way, but they would try to minimize the wear and tear on their bodies during that week. And I think that's probably Oregon's going to do some of that really to try to recover and get ready to travel again. I'm sure that, their preparation, they have scouted CU so well that they have a variety of plays that I think that they're going to work on that will be successful against CU. So in summary, I think they're looking ahead a little bit, but I think that they're looking more toward the uh, stuff we mentioned under intangibles is they want to be impressive. So they're going to come out and be ready to rock. Yeah. Okay. Well, no, we want to get to other things on this episode. So, Brad, any any stats that uh, mean anything to you? Anything that would uh, third down conversions? Obviously, six turnovers wouldn't hurt. Um, anything else that might help on the on the stat sheet that would give uh, Sue any reason to uh, believe that they're going to be competitive in this game? Well, again, you know, the only thing you look at is. Can we run the ball at least to some extent? And the other thing is this, Oregon's fine at rushing the passer, but they, if you look across their defense, they don't have the Kayvon Thibodeau. They don't have that monster who just has to be schemed around, particularly on the front seven, the good. Um, But in terms of just destroying the quarterback, that's not what they do best. So um, that might be nice for J.T. Shroud or uh, McCown, depending on who plays. But I think that's the thing is I didn't – they're not – they're a solid but not a great pass rushing team. Okay. Neil, anything that uh, you'd like to hang your hat on? Any uh, looking in the Sunday morning paper – not that anybody has Sunday morning papers anymore, but the stat sheet on Sunday morning or late Saturday evening that would tip the scales for you to say – Wow, the bus did better than I thought they would. Well, there's no Sunday morning paper, but there is Sunday morning see you at the game, which is where I'm <laughs> going to get my <laughs> I will be here, yes. I think that the number of gash plays, plays over 20 yards, running on the ground, uh, I think that's going to be the stat that tells the story. Secondary, uh, excuse me, secondarily, if CU is able to keep Uh, Oregon's offense off the field a little bit through some sort of running game or ball control passing game that may help reduce the damage but the stat that concerns me is just how easily Oregon piles up yards and the stats from the Arizona State game 
that you brought up or that we discussed is CU, CU is not going to be able to get through this game without giving under 500 yards of offense. And if that's the case, then Oregon's going to probably score in the 50s. Yeah. Well, we'll hold off, you know, keep the tension on your predictions for the game for a few minutes. I just want to do a little bit of a deep dive um, because we're going to talk about this a lot once we get to the offseason, which for CU, again, you know, the cynic would say that started, you know, sometime during the halftime of Minnesota game. One potentially piece of good news that came to the Buff Nation this week is we've been clamoring for a collective for 16 months now, over July 1st of 2021, NIL and collectives kind of went into legitimacy, and we've been waiting for the buff boosters because it's not a CU administrative thing. It's collectives are not controlled by the university. It's outside of that. Buffs for Life, a 501c3, which does fundraising and helps buffs former buffs through different problems in their lives and raises money for that purpose and has a lot of buff alumni. Of course, John Embry was the founder about 15 years ago, announced that they had formed a collective and put out solicitations for contributions to the collective Buffs for Life, which again is something we've been asking for, hoping for, and now we finally get it. And is this a red letter day, Neil, for the University of Colorado Buff fans? Because now there's going to be a pool of dollars potentially that can lure high school recruits and or transfers to the University of Colorado. Or are you concerned that uh, people that aren't real, there are a lot of fans or the University of Colorado that aren't fans of Buffs for Life? And would like to see that collective be formed somewhere else. Well, I, I'm not all that familiar with why people would um, not embrace bus, Buffs for Life, but we don't need to discuss that now. I guess my sense is that someone finally has stepped forward. Actually, they're the second or third to step forward. Stuart, you were among the first. <laughs> and you should be congratulated for that. Uh, you raised a lot of money in a short period of time. So as you mentioned, the fans have been clamoring, myself included. So it's time to write that check or, or um, send payment and see what we can do with this. Um, it has some potential. And I, I think it's time that there be a test case for whether an NIL organization can prosper at CU and actually have a positive effect. So let's give it a chance to succeed. Throw, th uh, throw some money at them, guys. Okay. Well, Brad, you know, you played in a number of Buffs for Life golf tournaments, and you know some of the, the names that are involved with the organization, some of the former athletes that are deeply into uh, the Buffs for Life organization. Uh, according to the website, 15% of the donations are going to go towards Buff for Life charities or their organization, 85% would go to players. You can designate uh, a specific player. You can designate a specific unit on a team. You can, you can 
do a specific sport. You can say, I want this to go to lacrosse, or I want it to go for the tennis team, or you can put it into basically kind of a general fund. Are you encouraged by the creation of the Bus for Life NIL Collective, or are we going to be concerned what we are going to get coming forward out of this? Well, I mean, there are people in that organization or affiliated with that organization who, first of all, they all care about CU football. These are not people who are there to be seen, which has never been a CU thing. Um, these all people all care. And so I don't worry about the money being misspent or even ill-spent. And I think they know some of the donors that could make this somewhat useful. So I'm, I wouldn't say optimistic is the right word, but I at least am willing to give them a chance. Uh, I'm a little concerned that the press release didn't mention we'd already raised X amount of dollars. I would have liked to have seen some seed money in it already. And, you know, it would be nice if that announcement came with, and we've solicited, we've gotten X number of dollars from Y rich people. And that didn't show up. So, yeah, is, is it a, a valiant effort? Yes. Will it be a successful effort? I have concerns, but I had concerns about that happening with CU no matter what. Um, this will at least, <laughs> how do I put this? This gives a fig leaf to some of the people in our administration who do not understand NIL to begin with or who do not want to understand NIL to begin with. Um, and perhaps a little bit of defense against those on the CU campus who are not particularly supportive of athletics. Some members of the academic community, for example. <laughs> um, and so I think it is harder to criticize an NIL that also involves charities than it is um, one that is simply to use a random team to say, Texas A&M buying players off the street with wads of cash. So I think given the unusual circumstances at CU now, um, I think Bus for Life is a interesting and probably a good choice for a start. It can't stop there. Right. Well, I think what encourages me is that if this, if there's going to be an organization that's already in place, as opposed to just starting from scratch and just say, CU Buffs Collective and trying to raise money from the word go, you've got, as you noted, not only are some of the heavy hitters in terms of alumni, but these are people that know people that are big money donors. And I think, you know, there are some people who's like, well, this is just a GoFundMe campaign or something like that. I think it's a much bigger deal than that. But at the same time, it would be nice if there was some disclosure as to either goals and or amounts received or something to give us reason to believe that it's being successful, that, okay, you know, there is a pool of dollars and a pool of guys that are going to see to it that the University of Colorado is not left behind anymore. And it's put up or shut up for the University of Colorado fan base at this point. It's like, well, we can compete. We can't do this. Um, other schools are just buying players. Washington State went out and bought a quarterback from Incarnate Word and, you know, is going to go to a bowl game. Can CU go out and get transfers? Of course, we've already talked about the idea of whether or not CU can actually 
get transfers, even if we can give them dollars to come here. So I just want to touch base on that a little bit. We're going to have a good portion of the offseason discuss transfer policies, transfers, new recruits, class of 23, and how all this fits in with the collective. But at least for now, there is optimism or hope. And mm -hmm. one thing the University of Colorado has not been selling of late is hope. And if there's a collective out there, and hopefully they will have some announcements about success in their fundraising campaign to give us more hope for the future, but at least it's there. And it's something more than we didn't, we didn't have that for the last 16 months, 18 months. So at least it's in place. And if people want to participate in making, see you a better place for recruits and transfers to show up and play, there's an avenue to help make that happen. Right. So before we let everybody go, since we're running a little bit longer than usual, but you know, we always have plenty to talk about. We seem to never lack for things to talk about. Moral victory time. I don't think anybody believes that anybody's going to predict a victory for the University of Colorado out of this. 31 points, I think, is the last line I saw. It's about between 30 and 31.5, somewhere in there. You started maybe at 29. Uh, we'll just use 30 as a benchmark. You uh, willing, Neil, to uh, take the buffs and get take all those points and figure the buffs after Oregon sits all its starters and people have left the universe and everybody's gone on to their Saturday afternoon pursuits in, in Boulder, Colorado, that the buffs are going to score 15, 18 points in the fourth quarter to get within the 30. Well, if you could clarify the question on this point, am I betting with my money or yours? <laughs> well, so we'll, bet, my we'll, bet money, with, we'll bet with Brad's money. How's that? Okay, Brad's money. I'm going to take care of Brad this week, and I'm going to go Oregon, lay the points, and take the over. Don't even yeah. think twice. Brad? I will say. I took the buffs and the points last week and covered. Yes. So I'm now betting with the house money. Well, take yeah, a lot too. of house money, but it is a little bit of house money. Yeah. Thanks um, to a punt return with four minutes to go, but yes. For, yes. You know, otherwise they wouldn't have beaten the spread, but yes, fortunately we all picked them to at least cover and they did. So good on us. Well, you can't count on the deus ex machina every week, Brad. So, yeah. Well, I just want to point out that the concept of the backdoor cover is a cover. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, again, I think, I think Neil's right. I think the over is the bet on this. I would not bet your money, my money, or anybody's money that CU can cover. I think Oregon has too much reason to score too many points in this game. I wish they didn't have that incentive, but they do. I wish the system wasn't set up to give them that incentive, but it does. And so I think this is probably more a 52-14 kind of game. Okay. Well, not usually save my prediction for the, the, the written tips, which comes onto the CU website on Wednesday mornings. But I'll give you a little bit of a preview. I went back and I looked at the first five games CU played against Oregon as a member of the Pac-12, including that 70 to 14 game and the 45 to two game. And the average score was 51 to 17 for those five games. And somehow that just seems 
about right. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. Maybe we will talk next week about the most shocking game since 20 to 10 in 1986. But otherwise, we'll just talk about Oregon. And then we'll talk about going on the road to face, wait for it, USC on a Friday night, again on national television. So at least he is getting eyeballs to watch its program. Whether or not that's a good thing is to be debated. But for now, we'll leave it at that. So, gentlemen, thank you. And we will talk again next week. Go Buffs. Take care, guys. I'll take a commission, Brad. <laughs>